One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about Mamma Mia 2 and the Ariana Grande album Sweetener. We've also listened to the Slate podcast Decoder Ring for the first time, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. So, hello everyone, Seriously listeners. That wasn't my trademark, hello. Uh, did a different one because we've been on holiday for what feels like about 10 billion years and I don't know how to speak anymore. Yes, hello. How does this work? Uh, we are <laughs> back. We've been off for a month having holidays, regrouping pop culture wise. I've had some amazing conversations at weddings and Hindus about this podcast. People who I didn't really know very well coming up to me and talking to me like they were my oldest friend because they've been listening to this podcast for three years. Um, oh my God. Which is kind so of amazing. Funny. <laughs> I had one of the best ones of those recently. Sorry, this sounds like the opposite of name dropping. It's kind of a weird thing to do. I was at a photo shoot that I cannot talk about, but <laughs> like that makes it sound like I'm doing something really exciting and embargoed and I'm not, but someone was taking my photo. And while I was like doing all the like posing, which is obviously not something that I'm normally doing. So it's extremely uncomfortable for me. One of the like assistants to the person taking the photos was like, sorry, I just really recognize your voice. Do you have a podcast called mm. Seriously? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel even more awkward. Isn't that amazing? I just love it. It's just so cool. It is so cool. And yeah, full marks to all the people who did that to me for not having like the supreme, you know, the supremely awkward thing when you meet someone that you know from something that they make where the knowledge is very one-sided like they know loads about me because they listen to this but I know nothing about them because I literally met them 30 seconds ago but all those people managed that conversational gulf with extreme grace and it was very pleasant so well done them. yeah also I feel like seriously listeners like knowing that someone is a seriously listener for me tells them enough about them and there's always like a couple of things where they're like oh my favorite one was the Gilmore Girls one or something yeah, and then yeah, you yeah. like discover they're a huge Gilmore Girls fan and suddenly you've got this massive shared reference point and like all this stuff in common so it's kind of not like it's not like when you meet someone you're like oh yeah I know you from Instagram yeah exactly it's, <laughs> it's different, like yeah. I've actually, we've essentially had conversations just yeah so that's been really fun I was in America for two weeks which was great because my favorite thing about going to America on holidays which I frequently do with my boyfriend because we have a vague connection to the US is going to the cinema and seeing things early that mm, aren't gonna come yeah. out here for <laughs> ages so we saw two films well we actually saw a lot more than two films because we love going to the cinema but we saw two films that don't yet have 
UK distribution. Oh, exactly. So I feel quite, yeah, I feel quite like, oh, thank God I managed to knock those two out of the park, which was Sorry to Bother You and Eighth Grade. Uh, um, I've seen Americans on social media chatting about them, yeah. Mm, so that was quite fun to knock out of the park. So that was the most seriously-ish part of my holiday. The actual highlight of my holiday, I realised afterwards, this is the saddest thing anyone's ever said, but was getting my um, grocery delivery when it arrived. I just <laughs> felt like, because we, we don't drive and we're like in a slightly, you know, isolated part of, of Long Island and to get the grocery delivery with all the like amazing ice creams and stuff that I've ordered for the holidays just like <laughs> the best fit. fills me with such enormous pleasure I can't actually put it into words I think so I went to Orkney on holiday which uh for anyone very Caroline holiday for anyone who doesn't know is a archipelago uh, off the like northeastern bit of Scotland Caroline's always on a Celtic island on her holidays if you want to find Caroline <laughs> yeah. just go to all the Celtic islands and you'll find her or like one off Wales or something and you'll find yeah absolutely her. I like small British islands that yeah that's my jam really Barry Island <laughs> I have been to Barry Island um and it's just as amazing as you might think but anyway um yeah deep sadness that uh I really wanted we were staying in a place called Stromness which is like this the second town in Orkney and there's not a cinema there but they have I think it's weekly like cinema screenings in their village hall and they were doing a sing-along greatest showman um oh my god which incredible I, scenes I've, I've still not even seen the greatest showman and I know it's become this like amazing sleeper box office hit and so much has been written about how like if it weren't for Hugh Jackman no one would be would ever make original musicals anymore etc cetera, etc cetera. so still I do really want to see it and maybe we'll do it as a recommend at some point but um sadly this sing-along village hall Orkney thing was like the day after we were leaving and I was oh, so sad about it um uh, my boyfriend watched it on the plane and I was really tempted to join in um I always power through literally four movies on the plane me too, and yeah. like absolute desperation like suddenly the flight seems so short and I'm like how many free movies can I get out of this flight I watched like funny girl for the first time oh, I watched I love, love Simon film. which we never did on the podcast love Simon we mm. should do it at some yeah, point that was really good and like blockers like a silly American comedy mm. I watched like so much movies and film and tv while I was on holiday so in a way it wasn't really a holiday at all because it's just what I do in my normal life but <laughs> or maybe flip it around and say you've managed to turn your actual job into a holiday yes, in a way yes exactly um so yeah all of that to say is that we've done the opposite of palate cleansing while we've been away we have crammed down a lot of pop culture I rewatched the entire two series of The Good Place because I've decided I deeply love that show and I'm very excited for series three. <laughs> yeah, Caroline September. started texting me on her holiday like so can we do a Good Place special of the podcast? I was like Caroline I don't really watch it but sure. Like, <laughs> so, I may well force you to do that. I've also managed to get myself commissioned to write like a 2,000 word essay about it. Oh dreams. I will actually um, really enjoy that. I have watched like a full series and three quarters or something of, of The Good Place so also, I can't pretend to be as, as distant as we are I also just wanted to make a joke about how our palettes are really filthy because you said we haven't cleansed mm, our palettes yeah. but does that work filthy palettes yeah let's We've go with it filthy palettes <laughs> <laughs> anyway right yes let's, sorry we're gobbling <laughs> let's get on with the first thing that we're going to talk about today is Mamma Mia 2 
colon here we go again uh which is a jukebox musical film based on the songs of abba if you didn't already know and it stars lily james amanda Seyfried, dominic cooper christine baranski pierce brosnan judy walters and many other people this is both a prequel and a sequel to 2008's mamma mia which was itself based on the very long-running stage musical of the same name so I saw this about three weeks after it came out uh, in a cinema. Oh, sleeping on it. I know, with exclusively people over the age of 80. Uh, it was fantastic. Amazing. There was a lot of like just quiet humming along. Yeah, I highly recommend like seeing a popular summer blockbuster, not in the week it comes out. Mm, I can't even remember where or when I saw this, but I know that I did it extremely quickly after the release date as an enormous ABBA fan and indeed Mamma Mia 1 fan. And I think there's something so interesting about how the Mamma Mia films have been received Mm. critically in the last decade. And a lot of people have been making this point, including Mark Commode and friend of the show, Laura Snapes at The Guardian. When the first Mamma Mia film came out, it was kind of panned. Yeah. Or at least very mixed reviews. You know, there are a few people who were like, do you know what? It does what it does really well and it's fun. But it was kind of sneered at quite a lot and thought of as a bit of a joke. But it was incredibly popular. And Laura always tells me stories about, you know, old women at the cinema that she worked in in Cornwall coming in like day after day after day and after months of it being on with sing-along screenings. And it was actually out on DVD by this point they were like still begging them to show it. And Mm. they were like, we cannot show this movie anymore because it's now available on DVD (laughs) and we're not meant to show it anymore. And, you know, it's like the the appetite for it was just enormous, but it was just a different time critically. Like the last 10 years, if you think in so many respects, you know, like tabloids were so much nastier, critics were so much snobbier, like everything's just changed so much. Yeah, there was no Netflix. There was no concept of like, binge watching something so bad it's good or anything like that yeah no and we've and like you know you can say lots of bad things about what people call um poptivism but at the same time we have become less snobby and that, which is a great thing and now Mamma Mia 2 which for me not to spoil the discussion before we really get into it but for me cannot possibly live up to the incredible amazing ABBA fest that is Mamma Mia 1 you know, Mamma Mia 2's got way better reviews. It's definitely not a better film. It's, it's definitely got way not better a better reviews. film. I know. I felt that what, even while I was watching it. Because, and also, I and I feel the same that, like, and it's partly, I think, why we started this podcast and why we enjoy doing it together and stuff is that it did feel maybe even four or five years ago that there was still this sense that if a lot of people liked something, it must not be very good. Yeah, and totally. Whereas I definitely feel the opposite, that if a lot of people like something, I mean, what even does good mean? It it just, if a lot of people like something, it means that whatever they like is worth taking seriously and it's worth like applying prop, a proper critical lens to because if something's popular, there's got to be a reason for it. You might not like yeah, the reason. My, <laughs> my boyfriend always goes, because my boyfriend loves the Big Bang Theory and I mm. hate it. He's always like, Anna, 20 million Americans can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you're like, well, they can, but they can sure. be wrong. But it does, it does mean that the show has something that appeals to people. Like, it yeah. doesn't mean you have to like it, but no. you can't dismiss it as crap just, just for that reason. He, that's right. So yeah, I, 
that's exactly how I felt about Mamma Mia 1, that like, this was tremendous fun. Many, many people liked it. Uh, also, I always think of, um, you know, the little bits in Gavin and Stacey where Rob Brydon's character Bryn like goes off and watches a film and then he comes back and like gives Gwen his review. Do and- I know them? I think about them every day. <laughs> and references are incredibly specific, Caroline, and they are shared. And he, uh, I'm, I'm, there's the bit where he talks about Mamma Mia and he's like, they just had a ball making this movie. Yeah, and it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. And that, I think, has a lot to do with why people like it so much because it's got a lot of stars that you recognise, but they're not necessarily in the persona that you recognise them because there's something of themselves shining through. Like Pierce Brosnan totally. might, might be doing gritted teeth singing in the first one, but he is also having a great time falling in love with Meryl Streep on, on a Greek island. Um, I so 100% agree. And I think a big part of Mamma Mia is like, there aren't, they don't really have characters. Like, no. I don't know how well they managed to like slot these actors into the roles that they're in in the musical or how much they changed them because I haven't actually seen the original stage musical. I have seen the stage musical, although it was many, many years ago. And my memory of it is that it's way more about the performances of the songs and less about, still not much about the characters or even the plot. Yeah, I feel like it so relies on your sense of the actors and what the actors' Mm. kind of brands are. Like for me, Colin Firth, like for how many years has Colin Firth been like, so reluctantly doing these rom-coms yeah. where he's like pretending to drag himself through them and is clearly like having a great time like that is so integral to his persona in this where he's like oh I'm spontaneous when he's not <laughs> and like pretending that he doesn't want to be in Mamma Mia but then at the end putting on this like ridiculous cat suit and dancing and stuff and you know um Christine Baranski her like super sexual knowing winks um you know Julie Walters her kind of like effervescent down-to-earth personality like even the Meryl Streep character they're all teasing your ideas of who these actors are and just like putting them on a Greek island and asking them to sing songs which is just like such a stupid idea and one that works so amazingly it works so amazingly yeah the big challenge for this sequel is that a the first film was so so good b the Meryl Streep character, supposedly out of completely out of choice, because the the script writers and the directors say, you know, Meryl Streep could have done this film, but we wanted to do it all based on flashbacks, so oh, we knew I that the character that. had to take a step Cause, back. Because I um, thought it must have been a scheduling thing that they could only get her for like two days, and therefore I mean, that's, that's why she's only not in how it. they're selling it. That's bizarre. Um, then why so would you not have her in it all the time? Yeah. So spoiler alert: Meryl Streep's character is dead by the time we return to the island. Mm. That that is not really a spoiler because you know you learn that in the first sort of 30 seconds of the film. So that's a big challenge, the the loss of Meryl Streep. And also the fact that all the like incredible, amazing, upbeat, sugary, impossibly euphoric ABBA songs have been used in They're the first film. They're all in film. the first film. That was immediately when I came out of the cinema, I was like, I'm not I don't see how they could have done a better sequel than they have without reusing the songs because yeah like dancing queen like all of the like best dancing upbeat songs are in the first film and they didn't reuse them so I'm not a massive ABBA fan I do like what I know but I haven't like Mm -hmm. exhaustively plundered their back catalogue there were songs in the second film that I don't think I've ever heard before yeah exactly Um, as a result I feel takes on this much more contemplative reflective tone mm. because it has to it has to unless it just wants to repeat the first film which isn't an option it has to move away from the like big upbeat songs towards 
ballads, which are slightly deeper cuts. And also that in, in combination with the fact that Meryl Streep's character is dead, just like produces a much more kind of reflectful, thoughtful, flashbacky, uh, ballady film, which for me is not the point of an ABBA musical. Like no, an ABBA musical for me is all about being like upbeat, ridiculous, dancing in the aisles. And like, obviously you can, st- there's still moments where you just like, one of us is lying is a ballad, but it's still really, really catchy mm. and you want to sing along. So it doesn't, it doesn't lose all its power. It's just not quite as up there with the original for me. And it, and uh, you know, there were, there were, there were moments in this film, which do reach the peak of the first movie. Like when they redo dancing queen, it's just yeah. like so silly and so ridiculous. And it's like Colin Firth doing the Titanic moves on a boat. And then that is terrible fantastic. dad dancing. That is really I was good. like close to tears. Like, Oh, same. Yeah. In fact, I was crying. I was crying tears of euphoria <laughs> watching that. Like it was so stupid and so brilliant. And then, Obviously, as I'm sure you agree, the the share Fernando moment. Fernando being the one song that they've really not used before that mm. has just like an incredible impact and it's just so fun. That that uh, moment towards the end with Andy Garcia and Cher is just like those were the two highlights. For yeah, me. absolutely. I cried in that bit, but, and I remember thinking like you know how thoughts sometimes when you're in that like I'm sobbing in the cinema thing. Mm. The thought that drifted across my head was like. All films that don't have Cher and Andy Garcia serenading each other across a courtyard are just lesser. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I totally get that. Like it was just, and, and it's also that weird, um, you know, when you go to a concert and like before the, before the big, before like, say you're at a Britney concert and just before Britney comes out, like the anticipation, it absolutely kills you. And when they come out and everyone's screaming, like for me at a One Direction concert or whatever, or a High Styles concert, just before Harry Styles comes out and all the girls are like screaming and then you see his silhouette and everyone is screaming and the curtain falls down. That kind of anticipation is just like, it's something that only happens in pop and it's just Mm. like impossible and euphoric and like horrible. And knowing that like, you just know that it's coming the whole film that they're going to have to do Fernando and you know that there's going to be this moment where like the Andy Garcia character for some reason you never hear his first name yep. but he's Spanish <laughs> and like you know someone's going to call him out and say that he's Fernando and you know that Cher's going to sing this song and like as that moment it becomes increasingly clear that it's coming I was like oh my god oh my god it's coming it's coming and you get so, I got so excited <laughs> and then like that's it's got an amazing opening few notes you know an amazing opening lyric it's just brilliant so um yeah really really tickled me I thought um a criticism that I have is Dominic Cooper boy was he phoning in this oh my god he was so terrible in this he was so terrible I actually thought because for, so, for some especially on the phone at the start as well and I'm like is this a metaphor for how bad your acting is I was thinking um because also he's like not wearing a shirt for some of it and he's like super ripped and I was like honestly you look like a piece of furniture you're like nice and teak colored yeah. that's about as much charisma as I'm getting off this yeah didn't massively like the way they did um the song that he and Amanda Seyfried do together where they're like in different places but also in the same place because I just the magic didn't really happen for me and I honestly could tell that they were like leaning up against the same piece of cardboard in a studio that didn't really work for me yeah, so, yeah. totally that I found that equally like clumsy and awkward and just didn't quite sit right I also did not at all understand the bit where and you know 
Bill, one of her dads, the thing where he's yeah. like being given an award in Sweden and then he's actually on his yeah. way to be, and, and it's, it's his like brother, his twin his, brother his who is like twin. him in a fat suit. I didn't, I just didn't understand that. That was bizarre. I'd, I'd forgotten about that until you mentioned it. You're right. That was totally weird. I also loved that they like did not even begin to try and make this plot consistent Mm-mm. with the first film, which where we like clearly get this reading of the diary entry yeah, where yeah. Donna is in, in her diary. Donna's like, Harry, Bill and Sam came to the island in this order and we had sex on these dates and it, it was fun for me. And there's like no emotional, mm. greater emotional complexity than that. And then in the film, they like all have sex for these like incredibly convoluted reasons in like completely different countries and none of them look even close to how the flashbacks looked in the first film because they're all like way more handsome um but you know fair play (laughs) artistic license whatever i'll allow it but it was just for a mama mia stan like me those omissions are glaring they are glaring yeah i also it grated on me slightly the film's habit of and this is a very nerdy point and stupid of me but the way that people keep grabbing microphones and singing into them when there is no visible means of amplification anywhere <laughs> yeah um, just like like a sing star mic or something yeah, so, like a toy mic so like lily james is doing her again lol valedictorian speech at oxford oh, um, yeah we should talk about that um yeah <laughs> that new, was great new college oxford whatever she's doing a kind of american style valedictorian address and then she just randomly grabs a microphone and starts singing even though there's no speakers or sound system and then she's outside on a canal boat doing it and there's no speakers or sound system but inexplicably everyone can hear her um yeah. i'm not gonna lie caroline it's a niche complaint yeah i know <laughs> and it just it just kept happening though like it wasn't just that one time so is, is this a universe with like magic speakers in everyone's ears i don't know um but yeah yeah very- exactly i did love the oxford sequences though and let's not even begin to veer into the territory of two oxford grads discussing oh, all God. The different ways well, that this was not really oxford honestly i don't but- care about that it was it was the microphone thing that bugged me (laughs) yeah I just found it so funny that they decided that had to be the backstory for Mm. these three girls in a band why why Oxford why couldn't they have met like a performing arts school or something I don't know I just found it so weird just anywhere just like living and why are these two Americans there with this like one northern woman it's just all like it's just so but they don't even try to make it believable which is obviously not the point of Mamma Mia so great good for them so yeah I would give this like a really high mark like I'd give it like an 8 out of 10 out of like all movies ever but like <laughs> Mamma Mia 1 for me is just a 10 out of 10 mm. so how can you compare you can't you can't compete with perfection you can't this is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So moving on from one sugary pop to another, Sweetener is the next thing we're going to talk about which is the fourth album from Ariana Grande. It features collaborations with Pharrell, Nicki Minaj and Missy Elliott and includes the singles No Tears Left to Cry, The Light is Coming and God is a Woman. So there's obviously been a lot of anticipation for this album from Ariana Grande, mm-hmm. who was already one of like our biggest pop stars, I'd say, in the like pop culture universe. And I feel like it's just become more and more famous since her last album to now. Her last album had so many big singles on it. Yeah. And in the gap between then, she's got engaged. She's been in the news a lot. And obviously, she was also part of a horrific terrorist incident at her concert in Manchester in 2017. And so she's just gone from incredibly famous to incredibly, incredibly famous. And there's been more eyes and ears on the record you know there's even new sites that maybe wouldn't have been particularly interested in her before her sort of you know combing the album for references to the manchester attack and it's just become a very anticipated record her other albums i feel like are like single factories i don't know absolutely yeah no they are um and she they could be best ofs apart from they they are themselves the compilation as it were Yeah. (laughs) yeah And for people who don't know Ariana Grande's backstory, she is very much a pop star in the Disney kind of Mm. mold. She is a child actor turned pop star. You know, she's following that template that's really originally a Britney template, really. Mm. But equally, Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, um, Demi Lovato, all these kinds of pop stars. I think just the only thing that sets her apart from those people is that she's got a really, really, really incredible singing voice. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which sounds like something that should should be a prerequisite, but obviously is not for most pop stars, especially pop stars that come out of that factory. And it is like shocking to me every time I hear Ariana Grande sing, especially sing live, how incredibly talented she is vocally. Mm, but it's, it's also relative. Like Selena Gomez is a decent singer, but Ariana Grande has four octaves and not only can she sing like herself, like, have you heard her sing like Whitney Houston? Yeah, you know, Celine she, Dion. Yeah, she Celine can like, Dion, do like, all these impressions that she, are like, she has like, accurate. A, sen- a, a level of control that pop stars do not normally have that I associate with like coloratura sopranos, like that level of sort of intricate control over what every single 
note of her voice sounds like. Totally. And if you have the ability to sing like Whitney Houston, you'd imagine most people would just be doing a Whitney Houston impression all the yeah. time. But the fact that she has the ability to do all these incredible things with her voice and still has this incredibly distinctive, breathy vocal. And it is like a little bit Mariah and it is, mm. it is a little bit like Destiny's Child. It's very influenced from that like very early noughties time in pop. You know, it's childlike and it's caricatured and, it, you know, all, you could use all these words to describe her voice that, you know, I'm sure it annoys many people. But like you say, her range is just like incredible and it's become a bit of a meme to say, you know, like, does she or doesn't she have the range about a pop star as a way of being like, you know, mm. sure, whoever, Miley Cyrus, Katy Perry, whatever, they might they might be an interesting singer, but do they have the range? And like Ariana Grande has the fucking range, like her voice is incredible and she in the promo for this album has almost maybe impressed me even more than the album because she's been doing loads of live performances you know on the late late show on snl on jimmy fallon whatever and like every time i hear her do a live performance i'm just like oh my god she can sing like she can really sing i don't know to what extent you found that coming through on the record um i have really mixed feelings about this record because I don't like it didn't massively engage me on the first couple of lessons and while there are a few songs that I really really like a couple of them are the singles like No Tears Left to Cry is a banger I really love yeah, it um, I also like God as a Woman I quite like uh the track with Pharrell as well I forget its name right now Get Well Soon is that it um Get Well Soon's the final track but it's he, the final he, track he, Pharrell appears on Blazed on the the second track on the album, which I wasn't as keen on, actually. No, I, I think it's Get Well Soon that I'm thinking of. I, I I like that one. But then, yeah, there's a whole, there are whole like runs of two or three tracks on it where I'm just like, Meh, could skip, but it's also pleasant to hear in the background. It's fine, but it's not like grabbing me as music. I do think she has tried to make more of an album as opposed to, have you said, like a kind of single factory. And I respect that as an artistic decision. Mm. Um, I I don't know whether this was intentional when they were writing and producing the album. I do think there is a little bit of a she's all grown up artistically narrative about it. Again, not a bad thing, but does mean that it's a sort of slight change of aesthetic from what she's done before. But yeah, I don't know. It just, it slightly missed me. It felt like it didn't really land. There are some tracks that really stand out for me. I agree with you that the singles are just like really, really good. God is a Woman, The Light is Coming is like so weird, but really good. And then the like, the I think obviously the the poppiest, funnest, best track on the record is No Tears Left to Cry, which was the lead single mm. um, for obvious reasons. Um, but there's like a run of songs in the middle that like kind of intrigued me, which are like Sweetener, to successful to every time to breathing so sweetener which is the title track i really like i've really gotten into that that song it's Mm. like really catchy i find this kind like sweetener such a ariana grande word and and like appropriate title for her because she's is like you could analyze her like brands to you know pieces because she's Mm really like doing this kind of like sexualized baby uh you know big eyes tiny little girl big ponytail you know thing the the cat ears and the sort of pastel clothes and yeah no absolutely and sugary is just like such a thing that goes with it and it's so funny that sweetness like even sweeter than sugar and with like less of the 
I don't know, it's like it's like skinny sugar. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and she's like called her album that. I don't know, I just find it so weird. So I really like that song and I really found successful, like so jarring that I actually think I kind of hate it. Um, mm. because it's her just going over and over again. It feels so good to be so young and so successful. And you're like, okay, I hate myself. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, you know, it's obviously meant to be like empowering and inspiring to other people but there's something about it that's so saccharine and so sickly sweet that I find it weirdly like ironic it sounds like she's being ironic and distancing herself from the idea that anyone's so young and so successful and also makes me think of that really disturbing bit in Fleabag where the guy's having sex with her and saying you're so young you're so young over Mm. and over again (laughs) Um, it's something like weirdly fetishistic about it so I I kind of hate that song but it like has it's really compelling to me in a weird way and then every time I really like find really emotional and the same for breathing, breathing, which is like basically her describing having a panic attack and yeah. how she like brings herself back down from those feelings and, you know, having, having struggled with anxiety. And I guess in her case, you could argue post-traumatic stress disorder, even like those feelings of like total panic um, and how they come on really suddenly and without context and yeah, I think a kind of amazing thing to be on on mm. a, a pop album aimed at such young people and aimed at getting, you know, radio play and stuff. I I really, really, I really would love it if they released that. I don't think they will, but. Yeah, I would, would love great. it if they made a video for that actually as well. Mm, yeah, exactly. It'd be good to see that get the single treatment, but I'm not sure it will. And then Get Well Soon, as you say, which is kind of like this very emotional track about like you know struggles in the world whether they be like mental ones or you know things like the Manchester attack that I saw her talking about on on the radio and she was getting extremely emotional about and I really like that song as well so Mm. there are definitely peaks on there but I agree with you there's something kind of like when I think about Ariana Grande songs that are so amazing and so catchy and so like perfect little like almost little mixy style very mm. structured pop songs like those aren't on here and she's obviously not necessarily trying to do that anymore and I I love this Ariana yeah Grande I do songs. as well I do as well um I did find it uh interesting obviously there's been loads written about it and lots of interviews with her and stuff but there was a really interesting interview with her in L, which partly I didn't really like very much because it I felt it like it for instance it spun loads out of the fact that she said during the interview she'd been watching planet earth and was all like oh Ariana is interested in the world and how it is made and it's like no <laughs> she just likes watching like weird fish like the rest of us yeah but um but there was also they'd spoken to her mum as well for the profile and there was this right. really like heart she's so interesting her mum as well yeah really fascinating character there was this really heartbreaking quote where her mum was like you know I was I was in the crowd like during the Manchester gig and um then after the bomb went off like it I felt like I was um I think she says me like I felt like I was like a salmon or something like everyone else was running away from the stage and I was running towards it which just made me want to cry like that's obviously yeah. that's what she would do and yeah it's incredible to think about which yeah and that made me sort of think about that whole event all over again and stuff so yeah I do think that whilst it does slightly narc me the amount of as you say, like p- close reading people have been doing, like where is Ariana putting her emotions about this terrible thing? Is it mm. in the songs? Mm. Obviously it, it is and like an intrinsic part of her now. So maybe it is fair enough. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think although I like, there's something about Ariana Grande's whole brand that 
I I don't want to say problematic because she, you know, it's an overused word and she's just a person doing her thing. But like, I do find something a bit off about the whole like very, very childlike, very, very explicitly sexualized um, mm. aesthetic that's going on there. But you just can't deny that she's like a very cool, interesting, very strong, very funny person. And like every interview I've seen her done, she's just comes across as so charismatic and likable. And she she handled the terror attacks with just incredible empathy and grace and like didn't didn't say a thing wrong about it. And like mm. obviously is a person who's going to have to process that in her own way as well. But I was just so impressed. I think that I think everyone was just so yeah. impressed by it, how she handled it. And and I remember at the time, I remember you writing about it for the magazine at the time that like there was people had sadly low expectations of her as like a young female mm, artist to sort of speak up about something so horrible and yeah she obviously did amazingly but again there was a quote in that profile and we'll, we'll link to it because I think it's an interesting piece in its own contradictions to say I don't like some of it but some of it is good and uh, her mum says like you know we we flew straight back afterwards and she kind of stayed in her room for two days and cried mm. and then she came and knocked on my door really late at night and she said like you know let's be realistic I'm not gonna never sing again but I need yeah. to sing in Manchester first before yeah. I carry on and I thought that's such a grown-up way of thinking about it totally. like obviously this is my job and I can't stop doing my job but I have to go back and like finish what I started first yeah yeah and I find her really funny. She's done. She did a really good James Corden thing where mm. he, you know, and it's all very engineered. And you know, to what extent do you ever get a real sense of a real person from from their promotional <laughs> activities before their album release? But he um, carried her into a Starbucks off the back of a rumor that she insists on being carried everywhere. And she was just on his back in this Starbucks going like, hello, I'm Ariana Grande. Don't you know that I must be carried? If you see me anywhere, I can guarantee you I did not walk there myself. It's just, <laughs> you know, she's ad-libbing and it's really funny. Yeah, I think she's I think, got a great heart. I think she does too. Like that sketch she did on SNL, the Tidal one where she impersonates different like famous female singers. Um, the bit where they uh, they go, oh, um, Ariana Grande, can you do Ariana Grande? And she just looks at the camera and she's like, Nah, not really a fan. Like, <laughs> I can see other celebrities not being able to deadpan that, you know? Yeah, totally. I like her, I think, and I wanted to like this album, but it didn't quite catch me. Yeah, I totally agree. And now, listeners, if you think back many, many moons ago, I recommended to Anna that she have a listen of slate's pop culture podcast decoder ring which is monthly i believe and hasn't been running that long so i think there aren't that many episodes out but the one that i particularly wanted anna to listen to was the episode about the john Locke conspiracy which i can imagine for some of our listeners will be nodding being like yes of course i know what that is and others will be like i have no idea what you're talking about please explain so shall we just briefly sketch in what john Locke I is i think before that might be sensible this? yes okay so the john Locke conspiracy or tjlc as it is known in tumblr tags is a fan theory about the bbc sherlock adaptation the one that stars benedict cumberbatch and martin freeman which basically held that way beyond the normal fan practice of like 
shipping two characters and wishing that they would get together and writing fic and doing art and stuff about the idea that they do get together even if that's not actually what happens on screen in the show the John Locke conspiracy held that that is actually what the BBC was going to do with the series that Sherlock and Watson were going to be in an explicitly gay relationship on screen and that every time Stephen Moffat or Mark Gatiss spoke about the show and said no actually that's definitely not what we're doing they were lying and it was all going to be this big reveal Mm -hmm. at the end it's funny because it can sound quite mad when you describe it in those terms uh for want of a better word Mm. but there are ways in which you know saying like oh they believed the writers were lying to them is actually not such it's not so wild when no studios do this all the time exactly because there's a lot of context for yeah writers in particular for misleading audiences because otherwise you know as people do all the time um to try and keep the secrets of their production and there's lots of other little kind of context clues that are important when it comes to talking about this and it's not something that ever really gets widely reported on the kind of niche nuances of fandom and fandom infighting especially like i never see Mm. proper reporting on fandom infighting ever because i guess who's it relevant to outside the fandom you could argue like it's not yeah well there was there was kind of this trend i feel about two three years ago for when um I don't know what, I think maybe Benedict Cumberbatch was promoting the imitation game or something. Mm. And he was doing lots of like cover stories for magazines like GQ and stuff. There was a bit of a trend on that sort of promotion tour for the writers, often male writers, to like speak to some super fans yeah. as like part of their background for the profile. Totally. And then they would like slightly cruelly juxtapose like Cumberbatch's sort of posh, aloof lifestyle with these inevitably women who just like love everything about him and hate the fact that he's engaged now and whatever and so then there was a quite rightly a kind of fandom backlash of like well we hated it when you didn't really engage with us but we hate it more now you are trying because yeah. when you do it it's terrible and sneery um, and kind of demeaning and not absolutely actually in yeah. good faith so I have to say I was a little bit uh hesitant about when I heard of the existence of this podcast and I heard from a friend of the show Elizabeth Minkle who's been on and who you might know from the fansplaining podcast she was interviewed for this episode because she was sort of in and around Sherlock fandom at the time when a lot of this was kicking off and she also writes and talks about fandom generally and I was like oh god someone's actually making a long podcast episode about the John Locke conspiracy like how can this possibly be a good idea mm, it just but actually, it's so difficult isn't it but it's really good I was, I think the episode is really good yeah I totally agree and we have talked whether or not we've talked about it in detail on the podcast I actually can't remember but you and I have talked about the John Locke conspiracy before and Um, even some of the very specific details of this podcast, which goes into kind of, I guess, the most infamous, if that could ever be the right word for something that is fundamentally quite niche, details of when um, this infighting got particularly bad. But it's very, very difficult to explain to an outsider because it's quite impenetrable. Like, it's one of those things where, like, unless you're in that area of the internet, it's actually not that easy to get into because, for example, like, you need a Tumblr account and to be following the mm. right Tumblr accounts to even see these posts in the first place. Like, if you as an outsider try and even, like, a lot of the time Tumblr only lets you see, like, five posts on a hashtag and then it's like you yeah. need to log in. And if you're 
I don't know it's like actually it's actually quite difficult and then like say there's a YouTube video explaining the whole thing it will be like a 25 minute long YouTube video from like a fandom YouTuber who's using all these words like AO3 and um you know I don't know bottom and stuff or whatever like that. Um, and yeah. you'll be like I have no idea what this what people are talking about so this is a podcast that really aims to make this accessible and report it to a wider audience which I'm sure a lot of people in the um John Locke conspiracy would find maybe a bit problematic because there's always I think a thing in fandoms where they're like oh hang on let's not like open this up to ridicule yeah. to a mainstream audience but it's done very empathetically and every time yeah. there's a new crazy detail there's also an element of like so for context you know people have been doing this thing that we now call shipping where they get to they believe that two characters are right for each other or in a relationship you know for hundreds of years and here yeah. is the context and for that and let's look at that in a bit more detail and talk about what queering the text might have meant to actual readers of Sherlock Holmes at the time of publication and um, I found that level of context really helpful in terms of discussing what's what was happening in 2016. Yeah me too and I also found because I was never like I, I enjoyed the first couple of series of Sherlock and then went off it I think like quite a lot of more casual viewers I and I'm also not like a huge Sherlock Holmes stan or anything so i had no idea about like the history of fan practices around the character sherlock holmes way before Stephen moffat ever existed yeah. you know it's it's kind of crazy of that to even think about like I, w I would have had no idea that was even a part of it like i i got a tiny glimpse of it, it was because um as some listeners might know i really like the uh 30s and 40s writer dorothy l sayers and she was a massive sherlock holmes fan and for christmas last year i got a quite a rare out of print copy of a book of her essays and one of them is about inconsistencies in the sherlock holmes story the red-headed league and I tried to read it and it's basically impenetrable like the level of granular detail she goes into about like all the possible underlying theories, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, what the hell is this? But now I've listened to this podcast, I understand that she mm. was playing what they call the great game mm. um, among serious Sherlock Holmes fans, where she's trying to tease out a broader narrative. So basically, TGLC has a, is part of a long tradition, apart from now the internet exists and people try to dox each other because of it. Totally. Um, and it all got quite toxic and harmful. Or no, it didn't all get parts of it got a bit toxic and harmful. yeah and this podcast um, does not shy away from that for a second it's like you know you could cynically say it is doing exactly what you might be worried about which is saying like taking the most extreme behavior and being like mm. look at what the, what sherlock created <laughs> this incredibly monstrous and difficult behavior was happening amongst normal people who became like perhaps to the detriment of their own sense of empathy too obsessed with this thing um, which I imagine would be worrying for a lot of people um, who were in the fandom. But at the same time, it's done with a lot of empathy. And I found it like weirdly moving, especially the I end. Did I did like, well, thought I was yeah. going to cry at the end. Like I never thought I would feel that way about a John Locke conspiracy podcast <laughs> because I do find it all faintly ridiculous because I do think people take that show extremely seriously and i know that there's lots of reasons yeah. why and you know we love to take things seriously on this podcast and 
Um, I think fundamentally my problem is I don't think Sherlock is that good. So I'm like, why is yeah, everyone no, taking same, it so seriously? Same. And I don't I like enjoyed, Benedict Cumberbatch. Because if it was anything else. I enjoyed the first couple of series, but not in a serious way yeah. in any way. Yeah, I know what you mean. But also what the the podcast did do for me which I found very interesting is it sort of opened up an idea that I'd kind of had bubbling at the back of my mind whenever I saw posts about this, which is this idea that you, although the like serious, harmful TGLC stuff was concentrated in a very small corner of the fandom, like the fandom as a whole had a very big influence on the show itself. Totally. Like, there was, and I think that is so interesting. Like there are such, there were such big gaps between the series and then they only ever made three episodes at a time. Like, you know, it really did shape how the show got made because I do think that the creators of Sherlock did dangle the sort of homoerotic tension between the two characters early on. And then when they found that they didn't quite get the response to it that they thought they would, i.e. people didn't just think it was a bit of fun, people took it dead seriously and were like, yes, of course, we would love there to be a gay relationship here. Uh, Ideally, you would show them having sex, please. They were like, oh shit, abort, abort, abort. Mm. And of course that caused it caused an even more toxic relationship also it made the show way worse um totally and now there are actual quotes from actors of the show being like yeah i don't really want to make it anymore it's not fun for me yeah and i i really got the sense that actually if you're trying to find you know not that this situation can possibly have a villain so it's a pointless argument but if you're trying to find the villain of this situation like obviously there's a problem if you're going to queer bait, which is the term for mm. this behavior of like dangling a potential gay relationship in front of audiences and then pulling away and not committing to that idea. Like it's actually a really cruel thing to do to it's a really horrible thing to do. Yeah. And it's really, you know, what we've, we've had a real lesson in what happens when you kind of betray the trust of your audience, which is what they've done. And it's like a kind of a serious thing to do that. And, you know, now we have people like Martin Freeman complaining to the press about how the fans have ruined it for him. And it's like, well, the creators ruined it for the fans, really, because mm. they they promised something. And then, as you say, backpedaled furiously when mm-hmm. that had meaning for people. And, you know, it's true if you, you it you it's, doesn't take um, an incredible amount of wish fulfillment to watch the first few episodes of Sherlock or the first couple of series of Sherlock and be like, oh, they're like flirting. And they're like yeah, playing no, with the idea are. that they're flirting and that there might be sexual tension between these characters. Like that's what they're doing. And if this was a show about a man and a woman, they'd kiss at some point and they'd be like, you know, it would, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would all be whether or not they end up together, like is, a, is another thing. But, you know, there would be a relationship there at points. And, you know, they're terrified to do that. It's messing with the source material too much, I guess, in their eyes, or it's just too big a thing to do on TV and um, I don't know why I I don't know why but also I thought it was very significant that beyond a normal queer baiting situation where it is very explicitly two characters flirting they put a third character in the show in the um the Mrs Hudson character who she believes in the relationship yeah exactly like it's actually on screen so how can it be so crazy of the audiences to believe it anyway we've gone down a real rabbit hole here with the John Locke conspiracy but basically the podcast is amazing because it is a real great example of um, going into a community, explaining it to a wider mainstream without making it like an object of ridicule mm. or this like massive thing that everyone much pe- like it acknowledges that this is quite a niche community um, rift, but it just looks it in a really nice way. And I would really yeah. recommend it to anyone who's even kind of vaguely interested in Sherlock. Yeah. And also just in like, if, you know, if you've been seriously involved in a different kind of fandom, it's I think of tangential interest, but also, yeah, I mean, I, 
I thought I knew quite a lot about this, having had a friend who was moderately involved in it and seeing it play out on Tumblr, etc. Mm-hmm. And I, I still learned loads from this podcast. It, it's really like rich in information. So um, totally. yeah, definitely recommend it. And I have, I have to say, I haven't listened to any other episodes. I've only listened to that one, but I am now excited to try out more Same. of Dakota Ring for sure definitely so we need to decide what we're going to do next week uh we want to get back into a pattern of regular recommendations so yeah listeners actually if you want us to talk about anything do get in touch on uh seriouslypod at gmail.com or twitter or facebook with your ideas please we love it when you do it for next week i'm going to recommend anna a film that i saw recently it's a film from 1982 starring dustin hoffman tootsie which i think i'm right in saying you haven't seen anna I have not seen, I have heard about, uh, I am intrigued, but no, never seen it. I saw a viral video where Dustin Hoffman cried about how he now understands sexism because of the film Tootsie. Um, and it was, yeah. he was neither being ridiculed nor really um, celebrated for that clip. It was just a thing where people were like, oh, this is weird. Let's think about uh, what this might mean. So I'm quite curious to see how the premise of Tootsie translates into a movie because all I know about it really is the premise. Yeah, which is basically that Dustin Hoffman plays a struggling actor in New York City in the 80s who finds that when he assumes a female persona and clothing, he is much more popular with casting directors and indeed everyone in his life than he is as a man who presents as a man mm. so um which doesn't immediately strike to me as uh yeah ring like you might think it's like a kind of proto mrs doubtfire type film mm. or something like that but i think for reasons we'll discuss next week i think it is different to that i have mixed feelings about it but i definitely think it has it's very thought-provoking there's lots to say about it okay can't wait Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast.